Romans 7 again this morning. If you'll turn there with me. We're coming to the end of yet another chapter in this great book as Paul has been presenting the details of the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. At its very basic definition, the gospel saves sinners. It's the message that saves. Paul presented the problem of sin in the first chapters of the letter, and then in the next few chapters, he presented the means by which people are saved by believing in the work that God has done by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. By believing in that message, a person can be saved, but after they are saved, then what? And it's really that question that begins the discussion that Paul started at the beginning of chapter 6, the question of what now, that shows that a person who was a condemned sinner but has accepted the gospel and is now no longer under that condemnation, how is that person to live? What is true of them now? That's the question of our sanctification, the ongoing process that we as believers go through in our daily lives to live out this new life that we have been given as those who have been justified, declared to be righteous. Remember, we've talked before about sanctification. We've been talking about it for two chapters now. Um, and there's three, three phases of sanctification. There's a past phase, a present, and a future. Or sometimes we call them the positional, the practical or progressive, and a perfect phase of our sanctification. We have been sanctified. That just means to be set apart. Set apart for God, set apart from sin. In the past, when we were saved, that was our position. We now belong to God. We are now a people who have been set apart from the power of sin and the condemnation of sin. If we skip ahead to the third one that I mentioned for just a minute, someday we will be set apart perfectly from sin. And that is something that's yet in the future. There will come a day when we are in glory with the Lord, we will be perfected, we will be complete, in that we will have bodies where even the very presence of sin will be done away. All of the effects of sin, the decay, the corruption, all that it brought about in us, even physically, will be gone and will no longer have any part with us. That is yet to come. So that was past and future, but I skipped the one in the middle. The one that has to do with right now, which is our progressive or practical sanctification. And that is what Paul is dealing with here in the latter part of Romans chapter 7. For the believer, we are positionally sanctified and we look forward to being glorified one day. But right now, we do not have the luxury of being completely free from the influence and the temptation of sin. There is a daily process, even a struggle that we go through, whereby we are called to keep ourselves free from sin in our daily walk. Back in chapter 6, Paul made it clear that we died to sin. We died to it. And when you are dead to something, you are free from it, right? That just makes sense. If I, if I die on the street today, I am free from my job, right? I don't have to go into work tomorrow. You no longer have to obey its desires when you are free from something. And yet, even after telling us that we are free from sin, what did he then command us? 
He said in verse 12 of chapter 6, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. He went on in verse 13 to say, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. And then in the last part of verse 13, he presented even the opposite side to that. He said, But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Down in verse 19, very end of the verse, we see the same thing. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. These are commands that we are to do, how we are to live our lives. We are no longer to walk in sin, no longer to live according to how we used to live. But instead, we are to be keeping ourselves walking in righteousness. That is how the believer ought to now live and how the believer is now free to live. We didn't have that freedom before. Before we were slaves of sin, we had no choice but to sin. But now we are free from that sin. And if we go on sinning, whenever we sin as a believer in Jesus Christ, we are placing ourselves back under that old master, that old master from which we were freed. I remember reading a story, and I don't know if I've told you this before. As, as we go on with teaching, I'll probably repeat stories, but I remember reading a story one time about, I think it was a tiger, some type of big cat, a tiger or a lion, that was kept in a horrible zoo in a foreign country. I think it was somewhere in Russia or one of the old Soviet uh, nations. But they went in and they found this, this lion or this tiger that was in this cage in Russia. And it was a very small, I mean, for as far as a tiger goes, it was a small cage, maybe 10, 15 feet apart across or something like that. But it would just pace back and forth in this small cage when they found it. Well, they rescued it, right? They took it out of that environment and they took it to this place where it had a large enclosure, right? It wasn't exactly free, but it was in a large enclosure, somewhere where it could roam freely. And what happened was this, this lion or this tiger, it got to the point where it would wander around a little bit, but then it found a spot in that enclosure where it just paced back and forth in that same like 10 feet that it did when it was still in that cage. It would just pace back and forth, even though it had all this freedom. It had much more freedom than it, it had ever known, and yet it kept itself tied to that old pattern. You could say it put itself under that old master, even though it no longer had to. It could go anywhere in that enclosure that it wanted to, but it's just paced back and forth, that same pattern. It kept itself tied to that, and I think that's a picture of what we do as believers when we fall back into those old habits of sin. We put ourselves in a situation that makes no sense when we don't have to do it, but yet we do it anyway. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we no longer have to sin and we no longer should sin, but yet there are times when we do it. And there are times when it seems as though we are still under bondage to that sin because we keep failing in an area. We keep allowing that lust of sin to prevail. And that's a picture of what Paul is presenting here in the last part of chapter 7. And we see him present it as a struggle in the believer's life, a conflict. There are some that see this section, we've talked about this before, as Paul talking about his life prior to salvation. That he's really talking about the struggle to keep the law before 
he was saved. But we talked last time about how I, I don't think anyway that that seems to fit with what Paul's talking about here. While that view has some merit to it, and, and it does provide some answers to some of the difficulties that we see in this passage, I think it fits more of the pattern of what Paul is presenting and has already presented in the letter that he's talking here about the conflict that uh, occurs in the life of the believer. And we looked in our last study at verses 14 through 18 where Paul started off this discussion on this conflict. In verse 14, he really presented the two sides, the real reason for the conflict that we have. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. The law, the commands that he had been given to, that had been given to Israel by God referenced here because that's what he had just been talking about in the previous verses. He was talking about being dead to the law. The law never saved. The law never had power to save anyone. But it was given by God. It was the standard that showed the righteousness of God, and it was given to men by the Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit. But on the other side, we have us who are of flesh. Keeping in mind, this is not the same as being in the flesh, which is a phrase often used to reference being unsaved or still being enslaved to sin. We are no longer enslaved to sin, but we are of flesh. Our bodies in which we still live, in which we still exist, still have that corruption, that stink of sin on them, if you will. We were corrupted by sin, by those lustful desires, and there is an element of that in our bodies that still exists for us, that still gives us that remembrance still gives us those cravings from time to time. That is part of our fallen, sinful human nature. So on the one hand, we have the spiritual things of God, and on the other, we have the fleshliness, flesh, the fleshliness, that word was easier to write than it was to, is to say, fleshliness in which we still exist. And from there, Paul presented this conflict that we have. He said in verse 15, For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. In my mind, which has been renewed, I now know differently than what I did before. I now know what sin is. I now know that I no longer want to sin. And yet, what happens? I do it. There are times when I still sin. I find myself walking in that small enclosure, that old habit, just walking back and forth. Why am I doing that again? And so we see here in verses 15 to 16 that the believer agrees with God now, agrees with what is righteous. He hates sin. He hates that he does sin. But yet, it still happens. So there's this agony that goes on in our lives over it. Verse 17, he said, So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Here he's personifying sin. Sin isn't Sin isn't an external entity. Sin isn't a force that makes us do something. Sin is a failure on our part. It is us either doing what we shouldn't do or not doing what we should do. That's what sin is. But here he presents it 
as a personified essence to make his point. On the one hand, there is me, what I want to do as a transformed, redeemed person. That is now who I am. On the other hand, there is what sin wants to do. Those same old sinful habits that used to enslave me that I used to enjoy indulging in. It's not as if Paul is making excuses here or saying that we have an excuse, right? We can't sit back and say, well, sin made me do it. It's not my fault. Nothing I can do about that. That's not what Paul's presenting here. No, he's simply making the case that when we sin, we are letting that sinful nature in us take charge, giving it authority in our lives. He already told us in the last chapter that it has no authority. The only authority that sin has in our lives is what we give to it, what we allow it to have. And in verse 18, the last verse that we saw last time, we see him make a conclusion based on that. He said, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. In his body, his corrupted flesh, there is nothing good. The flesh is corrupted by sin. We mentioned in the last couple of lessons regarding these bodies of flesh in which we live that nothing has changed as far as these bodies go. Someday, as we mentioned earlier, with the future aspect of sanctification, these bodies of flesh will be made new. They will be changed. We will be glorified. But until then, they will continue to decay and to age and to become weak until the day that we physically die. That has not been taken away from us, even as believers. That still is in our future, unless the Lord comes first. So in this flesh, there is still that corruption, and the desires that this flesh once liked, those desires still exist. Where does the mind, I'm going to get a little deep here, where does the mind or the heart start and the flesh end? That's one of those deep, deep questions that we probably can't really answer for sure. And I even hesitated to even bring it up. Paul is saying here that his body wants to behave one way, but he wants something different. Isn't he part of his body? How do those things work together? I could say that what I want, what I want, comes out of the electrical impulses that my brain creates. And of course, my brain is part of my body, right? My flesh. So the question is, where is that line of delineation? Do I end somewhere and my flesh begins? These are some deep questions to ponder, and I don't have a definite answer for you on that. But I believe that it's impossible for us to completely separate them out. Because in some way, God created them to function together within us. There's also a spiritual aspect to us that works together in that as well, which we know that having believed, we have been made spiritually alive, which before we were spiritually dead. So somehow the fact that we have been redeemed, spiritually alive, our hearts and our minds have been made new, but yet we exist in our bodies which were corrupted by sin in which we still live, 
they come together in this and they produce this dichotomy, this conflict that Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 7. There is still a problem that believers have with the flesh. It isn't a defeating problem in that the flesh will ever ultimately come out completely victorious. We know that one day this flesh will be done away with. This flesh will be changed to a perfect body. But if we let our guard down, even today, and we don't live like we're supposed to, then we will lose numerous battles along the way, which will lead to the frustration that Paul is talking about in this section. Look at the beginning of verse 18 again. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. There is nothing good in the flesh. It is totally corrupt. Now, as a believer, the heart has been made new. We have been made spiritually alive. That is all good. Those things in us are good. But it's the flesh that is not good. There's no goodness found in the flesh. What does that show about the unbeliever? There's nothing good in them at all, period. The unbeliever is spiritually dead. Their heart is more deceitful than all else, and there is nothing good found in their flesh. That's the picture that we saw in the early chapters of the letter. Sinful, fallen man given over to their depravity. But for the believer, there is good there. Now, it's not good because of anything that's found in us, but because God has made us new creatures. Today, new on the inside. One day, new on the outside as well. You know, we hear these stories today. You look in the news at any given time and you hear these stories about what people need to what, what do people need today? Why do we people do wicked things? Just this week or in the last couple of weeks, you hear stories about, you know, a mother that kills her own child. You hear stories about somebody that walks into a store with a gun and until the police kill him, goes shooting around until the police kill him. And we debate endlessly when we hear these stories. How can we solve these problems? Why do these things happen? What will stop people from doing these things? The heart of the unbeliever is desperately sick. There is no spiritual life. There is nothing good within them. It is only by the sovereign grace of God that things aren't really any worse than they already are. And the only way that people are going to get better is to turn from their sin and to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a a gun problem. It's not a mental health problem. It's a sin problem that's going on out there. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation. The message that changes hearts, that changes lives, allows the blind to be able to clearly see what is right and what is wrong and empowers them to be able to act upon the truth. Now, as we see, there is a struggle to act. That's what Paul is talking about here, the struggle of the believer, because in the believer, there is a new heart and there is a new mind. And again, when we get to chapter 8, we'll see the role that the Holy Spirit plays in the empowerment in the believer's life. But in this flesh, there is nothing good that dwells, which is why he said at the end of verse 18, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. This is now what I want to do. I want to do good, but I don't always do good. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul is saying, oh, I never do anything good, or that as believers, we never do anything good. 
Again, like I said before, I don't think this is necessarily Paul's confessional of his own personal life that he's presenting here. He's not pouring out his heart to explain how much of a failure that he is in the Christian life. But he's presenting this as an illustration of what we all go through. In those times when we sin, this is what's going on. There are times when I do fail. And in those times, there's a remorse. There's regret for, filling, for failing to live up to what I am now to be doing as a child of God. When you become a believer, there's a sensitivity to sin now. And as you mature in the faith, that sensitivity grows and grows. A, a realization of just how many times, how often we sin. As we mature and we grow in the faith, that sensitivity to sin just grows and grows and grows for us. Makes it feel, even though there's uh, even that much more remorseful and painful for us when we do sin. Turn over with me to Philippians chapter 3, third chapter of Philippians. I know we haven't even gotten into our new text yet this morning, but we'll get there. In Philippians chapter 3, we're not going to cover this entire chapter. It's kind of hard not to, but we won't do it. But we'll break in here a bit. But in this chapter, Paul is talking about his past life. He talks about his life in Judaism, and he talks about the things that were important to him then. But in comparison to his new life in Christ, those things are rubbish. They're trash, he says. For instance, look at verse 8. He says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Paul lost just about everything that was considered dear to him before, and he had no regrets about it because it was rubbish compared to what he had gained from knowing Christ. From then on, he starts to talk about his life now. Verse 9, he talks about how the new, new righteousness that is found in Christ, not the righteousness that he was trying to obtain through the law, but righteousness that comes through faith in the gospel. Verse 10, he talks about uh, being conformed to his death, knowing the power of his resurrection, fellowship with his suffering, that's identification that he now has with Christ. That same as that spiritual baptism that we talked about back in chapter 6 of Romans. But look at what he says in verse 11, starting in verse 11. He says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Here's that goal that we're we've been talking about. The resurrection of the dead, that is the time when we will be glorified. We receive glorified bodies. That is the ultimate goal that we anxiously long for that we talked about Rack back in chapter 5 of Romans. But look at verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. He's not there yet. Paul knows that he has not yet been resurrected. He has not yet been glorified. So what does he do in the, in the meantime? But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The way he lives his life is to reach forward to that goal, seeking to live now as he should. Not yet glorified, 
not yet sinless, but striving to reach that level, striving to live that way. There is work to be done to live that way. And he goes on in verse 15, this ought to be the goal of all believers, as many as are mature or perfect. He says, let, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. Those who have maturity, being closer to perfection, understand that this is the attitude to have. That we have that drive to press on, to strive for perfection. We will not reach perfection here on earth. You look at someone like Paul and you think, well, if he says he wasn't perfect, what hope do I have? Well, we won't strive. We won't reach that perfection here on earth. We won't reach it until we are in glory. But that doesn't mean that we stop striving for it here. We keep presenting ourselves as slaves to righteousness. We keep ourselves away from sin. We don't listen to those old desires. We don't make ourselves available to those old habits. But we press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Glory is our goal. That is what we are to live like here on earth, as if we are glorified even when we're not yet. When we understand that, when we know that's how we are to live, then whenever we fail, we understand just how frustrating that is. I am not going to win the Super Bowl this year. Not going to do it. I know that. And that doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me that I'm not going to lift the Lombardi Trophy tonight. Why? Because I am not a world-class professional football player, and I never will be. But there are a group of 53 guys that are going to be, at the end of the day, extremely frustrated by the fact that they did not win the Super Bowl today. Why? Because that's the goal that they're striving for. And when they fail to reach that goal, that will be an excruciating failure for them. For the believer, as we grow in our maturity, we strive for perfection. We strive each day to serve our Lord perfectly. And when we don't do it, when we fail and we succumb to sin, then that failure, that sin, is excruciating for us. And it should serve to fuel us on to strive again tomorrow to live our lives perfectly for him. That's the picture that Paul is presenting here in Philippians chapter 3 and in Romans 7. It's the reason why he is so distraught over any failure that he might have to do what he knows to be right. His desire is to please God, but then the failure sets in. The flesh betrays him. And he gives into that instead. So look with me at verse 19 of Romans 7. We continue on from there. He says, For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Now here he's basically saying the same thing that he'd said earlier, but there's a little bit of a twist on it. In verses 15 through 17, he didn't, he didn't want to do something, but he did it anyway. Now here, what do we have? Here, he wants to do something, something good, something righteous, but he doesn't do it. We talk sometimes about sins of commission and sins of omission. If you've heard those phrases before, there might be other names for it, but that gets the point across. A sin of commission is a, is a sin that I commit by doing something that I shouldn't have done. A sin of omission 
I should be doing something, but I just don't do it, right? I omit it from what I'm supposed to do. And that's what he's saying here. I want to do good. I know I should do this thing, but I don't do it. Why don't I do it? Reading my Bible, exercising my spiritual gifts in the church, sharing the gospel with those around me are some examples of what this type of thing might be. Why didn't I do that? I had that opportunity. Why didn't I do it? And so by not doing what's good, what are we really doing? He says, I practice the very evil that I do not want. It's sin. That is still sin. Not doing what we're supposed to be doing, that's doing sin, practicing sin. That's his point. And so in verse 20, we see him personify sin once again. He says, but if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. This basically is the same idea of what he said back up in verse 17. It's the same, same idea. I'm not doing it. Sin is doing it. Why? Because sin still dwells in me, still dwells in the body of the believer. We might say, say well, that doesn't make sense because haven't we read that didn't sin die? Didn't sin die? No, sin didn't die. We died to sin. There's a difference there. We died with Christ to the old man, to sin, to the law. We died. But sin didn't die. The old man didn't die. The law didn't die. We died to them. Like we've been saying, we died to it, but yet we still live in these bodies that are tainted and corrupted by it. So sin is still around. Its influence is still there, but its authority over us, its power over us is gone. Now, it's worth mentioning, this, again, this doesn't give us an out when we sin. Like I mentioned this before, sin is doing it, not me, so no problem, right? Yes, still a big problem. You see the battle, you see the turmoil, the regret in the life of the believer who fails in this way. For someone who claims to be a believer to sin and sin and sin and sin over and over again, have no shame, have no remorse, just a casual attitude of, well, that's just the way it is. I'm forgiven and I can't help myself anyway, so I'm just going to keep doing it. That's not the attitude of a believer. That's not the attitude of what Paul is presenting here. As a believer, a true believer, I do not want to do these things. And when I do these things, I hate that I do these things. That's the picture that we're seeing here. In verses 21 to 25, Paul is going to sum all this up, and he's going to refer to laws here in this section. Um, I take it that while he's been talking about the Mosaic Law up to this point, here he starts to use law in a general sense in this section. He's talking about the law of sin and the law of God. He'll talk about the law in the members of the body and the law of the mind. There's a contrast between these different laws and they come into play with the contrast that he's been talking about. He's just now stating them as laws or maybe a better word is principles. And that's actually a word that's translated in verse 21. If you look at verse 21 with me, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Well, depending on what version, what translation you have, 
the word principle that's there in some translations is really the word law. It's the same word that he's been using for law throughout the chapter. You could say, I find then the law that evil is present in me. So he's departed from talking about just the Mosaic law here. Now he's simply using this word to talk about a general principle. And we see that by the fact that he clarifies each of these laws in the rest of the chapter. It's the law of the mind, of sin, of God, and so forth. So what is this principle that he's talking about? He's found that evil is present in him, present in me, he says. He finds this. This is Paul's experience as written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul has found. Evil is still present. Now, he understands that even though, the sin, the, even though sin is in the body, that's still a part of Paul. It's in me, he says. Spirit, mind, body, they all form that complete package. goes back to what we mentioned earlier. We make up the whole package. All the parts work together in some way. So if evil is present in one of those parts, then it's present in me. It's still there. Again, we are not under slavery to it any longer. We have freedom from its power and authority, but it's still there. It's present in me, the one who wants to do good. My changed heart, my transformed mind, a believer wants to do good. Unbelievers, again, that's not what they want to do. Because evil is still in them completely, spiritually dead, non-redeemed mind and body. Again, some would go on and they would pick out this verse and they would say that this is an indication that this is an unbeliever that's trying to do good. And they would point out that the unbelieving Jews who had a zeal for the law, but they couldn't, they couldn't keep the law, and that's that unbeliever argument again here, that Paul might be talking about his unsaved life. They point to this verse. But again, I don't think that fits the pattern. The unbeliever is wholeheartedly given over to his sin. And while he may claim or even think that he's trying to do what God wants him to do, I believe Paul has made it clear that he has rejected what God has revealed to him. He has rejected the Creator. He worships the creation. And especially in the case of the Jews, they had rejected the commandments of God to serve the law as a system of works when it was never intended to be that. So while the unbeliever might claim that they are trying to do good, that's not really what they're trying to do. There's nothing good in them. This, again, is the viewpoint of the believer, the one who wants to do good. Now, evil is present in the one who wants to do good. And you see in the next verse, verse 22, he starts off with the word for there. He's going to go on to explain verse 21 in verses 22 and 23. He says, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Whatever God wants, whatever God has said, there is joy in Paul's desire to do what God has said. The change in mind of the believer brings a delight in mind and heart of the things of God. This is one of the things that is a mark of a believer, of a true believer. The believer finds joy in the things of God. In the word of God, spending time with other believers, living a righteous life, that's what brings joy to a believer. That's what we've been seeing here, isn't it? 
Paul says he sins, and that brings what? That doesn't bring joy. The flesh says, oh, I have a craving for something, and he sins, and, it, and there's no joy that comes from that. It's agony for him. He hates it. There's frustration. Because it's not from the Lord. It's not something that God wants him to do, and he knows it. The believer if focused, is focused on the joy that comes from what God has given to him. We won't take the time to do it, but if you go back and look at Psalm 119, very familiar psalm, read through there, you see the delight that the psalmist had in the things of God and the delight that he had in God's word. I delight in your law. Your law is my delight. Oh, how I love your law. It's it's my meditation all the day. All through that very long psalm, the delight and love is in the law of God, freely given by God to his children. That's what we see here from Paul. That's what gives a believer joy. He says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. There is joy in the inner man, agreement with God in what he considers to be right, what he considers to be righteous, now that we have been made new. Our inner man, this is that part of us that has been made new already. The outer man is the external fleshly body, hasn't been made new. But we have been made new in Christ. That's the inner man. Look at a couple other passages with me. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. There's a, other places that Paul uses this. We'll look at a couple of them. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look down at verse 16. Here we see the contrast that we've been talking about. He says in verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Our outer man, that's the flesh. That is decaying. Again, that hasn't been changed. But the inner man is being renewed day by day. That's the sanctification process that continues to grow and mature us as believers. Our inner man is what we truly are, our justified, redeemed self. It's that part of us that one day, when we are glorified, the outer man will catch up. We have been made new internally of mind, spirit, heart, while the outer man still decays and suffers corruption. Look over in Ephesians chapter 3. In the book of Ephesians, if you're familiar with the layout of Ephesians, the first three chapters is a very doctrinally heavy book. And then in the last three chapters, Paul gives us walking orders, you might say. Basically, based on what is true of us that he's presented in the first three chapters, he gives us in the last three chapters to say, now live like a person that I just presented to you in the first three chapters. At the end of chapter 3, he has a prayer for them. And in verse 16, we see here part of what he prays for them. He says in verse 16 that he, God, would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. And it's again the inner man through which the Holy Spirit works in us, empowers our inner man so that we might be able to go out and serve Him, live for Him. Do the works that have been given for us to do, making our bodies do what they're supposed to do. Do what it is that we want them to do, because that's what God wants them to do. 
That all comes through what has happened to us in the inner man. So back in Romans chapter 7, the inner man is contrasted here. It's that part of us that delights in what God says. But as we look at verse 23, we see the contrast there. But, and there's the contrast, I see a different law in the members of my body. In the inner man, there was the law of God. Now in my body, there is something else, a different kind of law. There is something in my body that exerts a different kind of influence, and that would be that sinful influence. That's the other law, the different law that he's talking about here. That law is what is the cause of the conflict between my body and my mind. Note here he says this law is in the members of my body. The flesh in and of itself is not the law. It's not sinful, but it's a law that's in my flesh. It's flesh corrupted by sin that is sinful. Is that corruption of sin that is in my body that is the problem? Now that might seem like splitting hairs because there's, there isn't a single person alive who doesn't have that sinfulness in their flesh. Everyone is born with a sin nature, but it's important because flesh in and of itself is not sinful. We'll talk more about the importance of this when we get to chapter 8, where we see that Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came in flesh, but his flesh was not sinful. He was, his was the only flesh that wasn't sinful because his flesh was never tainted by sin. But the law in the members of the body are contrasted with the law of God from the previous verse. And that's what brings the conflict. We see that in the next part of verse 23 where he says, waging war against the law of my mind. There's a war being waged within us between the different parts of who we are. There's a war going on between my mind which joyfully desires to do those things that God wants me to do, wants me to be in the Word, wants me to be in church, wants me to fellowship with other believers, wants me to serve Him in everything that I do. This is my mind. This is the same thing as the inner man. Inner man has been renewed. My mind has been renewed. It's that inner part of me that we're talking about here. Include all things like emotion, will, reasoning, all of that. So that's on the one side. But on the other side, we have the law and the members of my body. That other part of me that is influenced by the flesh that has been corrupted by sin. Now we get to really start splitting hairs when we think about this because it makes it sound like, well, are all sins external? All sins are things that we do with our hands, right? If we're talking about just our bodies, then sin must be just things I do with my hands or with my body. But my mind must always be pure. Well, if you think about sin, you know that that's not always the case. There are plenty of sins that we commit in just our minds. Paul used the example of coveting earlier in the chapter, and we talked about that one because it's one that nobody, can, nobody necessarily sees that you're doing it, right? Because it exists where? just in my mind, right? I just think about it. It's primarily something in my mind. Jealousy, greed, lust, all of those types of things. Where are they? It's things that we think about. This is where we start to get a headache with some of this stuff. At least I do. Maybe I'm just giving you a headache that I don't need to be, but this is where I get a headache with some of these things because it's that same question that we asked earlier. Where does the flesh stop and the mind begin? 
my brain is flesh, isn't it? A disease can happen or an injury can happen to my brain and it's going to affect the way that I think. So is that synonymous with my mind? No. There's some handoff between the two. Again, I don't have a definitive answer on that. I look forward to finding out how all these things work myself someday when I'm in glory is how this all comes about. But the point here is that the inner part of us there that has been made new is still battling against the element of our flesh that has not yet been made new. I remember sins from the past. I remember how pleasurable things might have been. But in my redeemed mind, I no longer want to do those things. I know I shouldn't do those things, even though my body might still get cravings for them from time to time. It's that type of battle that goes on here. We know this is a battle because, again, if it wasn't, there would be no need to give commands on this, would there? If all I wanted to do was please God in every area and there was nothing to influence me otherwise, then why would Paul have to tell me, don't do that? Stop doing that. Don't do that. Make yourself do this instead. Why would he have to say that? There is work that we have to do in order to be able to fulfill these, fulfill these commands. Now, again, we saw it in Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll get to it in our next study when we get into chapter 8. But the work of the Holy Spirit is what enables us to accomplish this as well. We'll have a lot more to say about that in the coming weeks, but it's through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit that we do obey these commands and can obey these commands and make our bodies do what our minds are desiring for us to do in line with what God wants us to do. There is a war being waged within myself, within my own body. And look what he says at the end of verse 23, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. What does my falling into sin do? It puts me willingly right back under sin. Now, we are not enslaved to sin. I've mentioned that many times. We are not enslaved to sin. It has no authority over us. So how can we say this? How can Paul say for the believer that I'm a prisoner of it? It's because I put myself right back under it. Back in chapter 6, what did we see when it came to the authority that sin had over us? In verse 14 of chapter 6, he said, For sin shall not be master over you. We died to sin. We are free from its power in our life. We are to live free from it. But then what did he say in verse 16? Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? What do we do when we listen to sin and succumb to sin and obey it? We put ourselves right back under it for obedience. That has the effect of making ourselves its prisoner. Who here, when I say Otis the drunk, does anybody know who that is? Anybody recognize that? Otis the drunk, going back, way back, Andy Griffith Show. I'm sure some of you remember Andy and Barney from the Andy Griffith Show. Otis was the town drunk in Mayberry. But Otis, you may remember, was a little bit interesting because he had a key to the sheriff's office and he would take his key and he and he let himself into the sheriff's office even when Andy and Barney weren't around 
And he'd walk in there and he'd go over to the cell and he'd take the key off the wall and he'd open up the cell and he would just let himself in and close the door, leave the door open, whatever. But he would put himself in jail. Now that was comedy, right? That was funny. It probably wouldn't be considered funny today, but there'd probably be some problems with it, but it was funny. Why was it funny? Because it was so absurd. Why would anyone willingly put themselves in jail, especially when they didn't have to? That's a good question for us as believers. Why would we willingly put ourselves into prison of the law of the members of our body, the sin that still dwells in our flesh, but that we've been freed from? Why would we put ourselves back in that jail cell? It makes no sense, and we don't have to do it. It's not always easy, and that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. I hate, I hate spoiling the ending. I know we haven't gotten to chapter 8 yet, but that's where this is going. But the idea is that we do not have to put ourselves in the prison of the law of sin. Even though this war is being waged within us and we constantly have to be on our guard and willing to fight off the influence that sin might exert on us. Verse 24, Paul sums up this war with a question, and it's a question that shows the frustration of the situation that he finds himself in, that we find ourselves in. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Even in the question, you see the pain and anguish that Paul has in this conflict. I have been a believer for many years, and yet I still succumb to sin. I still have issue with my sin. What is going on? How frustrating is that? Like we talked about before in Philippians chapter 3, the frustration grows, becomes more severe, the more mature we get in the faith. Why is that? Because we are more sensitive to it and we become more and more aware of every time that we do it. When a person becomes mature, when sin becomes less and less a part of their daily life, then the time that they do it just becomes more maddening, doesn't it? When you don't do it very often, but then it creeps up on you, and then, oh, why did I do that? I still remember the one time, the one time I ever heard my mom swear. I was maybe 10 years old, and she was driving me through our neighborhood on icy roads, and we were sliding down the hill sideways. And she let one swear word slip. It wasn't even one of the bad ones. But it was just one word. But to my 10-year-old brain, it was very remarkable to me. My mom would be mortified if she knew that I was telling you all this. So <laughs> she's a very godly Christian lady. So nobody tell her that I, that I told you this. But that's really the whole point. That's why it was so remarkable to me. Because in her Christian life, this wasn't an issue for her. It wasn't something that was common for her at all certainly wasn't common for me to hear it from her. But I don't bring it up to her because I know how embarrassed, how mortified she'd be to remember that one probably very justifiable time, we would probably all see that as a very justifiable time, to let something like that slip. I see it as an example of just how godly of a woman she is, but I'm sure that's not her perspective on it, and I'm sure she remembers that day as well. But when the believer is mature, even those little times that we let ourselves sin, they're exceedingly frustrating. 
we get to that point as we are sanctified. And so here's Paul, probably didn't struggle with sin as much as a lot of us would. But you see his anguish here. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Where and when does relief from this war finally come? If we are trapped in these bodies tainted by sin and glorification has not yet come, then how can we get free from this situation and how can we win these battles? What is it that can allow us to live as we want to live, as followers of Jesus Christ, those who have been made alive in him? The answer to that question is coming in verse in chapter 8. That's where we're going. It has to do with the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, giving us that ability to live as God wants us to live here and now, today. Paul will tell the Galatians in chapter 5 of Galatians, walk by the Spirit and you will what? Not carry out the desire of the flesh. In future lessons, we'll talk more about what that means, how that's possible, but that's where we're going. Until the day comes when we are freed from the body of sin, the body of this death. That is ultimately when that will be accomplished. When glorification comes, we are to live our lives under the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us until that day. Who will do this? Verse 24 is the epitome, the low point of the argument where all seems lost. As Paul has presented it, there is no hope, nothing that we can do on our own because this is our situation. But then we come to verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here is the answer to who will set me free. God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Once again, the ability and the power to overcome this, it's not a part of us. It's not about us. It's what God has done for us and done in us. We have not redeemed ourselves. He is redeeming us. Today, he has redeemed us in spirit, in mind, in our inner man. But the day will come when that work will be completed, perfected, when our physical body will follow suit. Look with me over at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're almost done, but we'll look one more passage. 1 Corinthians 15, the great chapter on the resurrection. We see here what it is that we're anxiously waiting for. Look down at verse 53 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You see, when is death swallowed up in victory? When we have put on the immortality. This is the time when we are changed. He said that back in verses 51 and 52. The trumpet sounds, the dead are raised imperishable. We are changed. These bodies of death will be made New, just as our inner man has been made new. Inner and outer man, made new together, completed. And who do we have to thank for this? Whose work is it? Look at verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Same thing that he's saying in verse 25 of chapter 7 of Romans. God through Jesus Christ. This is where our victory comes from. 
Back in Romans 7, he sums up this conflict at the end of the verse, just before he'll go into the next chapter where we'll talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Here is our current dilemma. We know it will, be resol- it will be resolved one day. We know that these bodies of death will be done away with. Perishable will be made imperishable. Death will be swallowed up. But today, that is not entirely the case. So this is what's true for us. With my mind, I serve the law of God, but my flesh, the law of sin. That is our current trouble, our current struggle as believers. This will be our battle until the day when we go home to be with the Lord, either at death or at the rapture. This is what we have to look forward to. Thanks be to God that we have a future hope. It will one day be taken away, but for now, this is how we are to live. And it is our duty to live in a way where we make our bodies do what our minds desire for them to do. And next time, we'll see how we can accomplish that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come to you, we give you praise for uh, just the truth of your word, and we thank you, Lord, for the, uh, the salvation that you have made available to us. We thank you, Lord, as believers, that our minds have been changed, that we now think differently, Lord, and that we now have joy in the things of your word, of the things, um, everything that you have given to us, Lord, and we just pray that you would Help us to live in a way that is honoring and glorifying to you. Lord, we just pray that we would not back away from the struggle, that we would not give in to sin, that we would honor you, Lord, with every decision that we make, and that we would be spending our time saturating our minds with your word, Lord, that we would, we would be focused on you in every aspect, of, in every area of our lives, so that we would honor you, Lord, with every decision that we make. I thank you, Lord, for the times that we get to study your word here this morning. We just pray, Lord, that you would be with us in the next hour, um, that we would be worshiping you, Lord, praising you, that we would hear your word once again. And we pray, Lord, that we would be able to leave here today just encouraged and edified and built up, Lord, so that we might honor you with all that we do. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.